Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side by side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Let me take a, a moment at the beginning to sort of recapitulate a little of what I hope I'm uh, beginning to say. We spent some time in scriptural basis in the last session uh, on that. I think what I want to get at is that that web is tight enough of which we are a part. And I appreciated uh, Sam's comment that there probably was a better term than web for that. A network, maybe uh, I'd like, I wish I knew more about the nervous system of the human body. Maybe that's one thing I need to explore. I noticed that when a nerve is cut, something dies. And the separation takes place. Uh, so it's a, it's a living network. It's a living web that we talk about. And that web is such that uh, our salvation lies in somebody else. We know that our salvation does not lie in us. It lies in Christ, who is the mediator between God and man. And for most of us, it's very clear who the people are who brought Christ to us. So that our salvation lies in him, but the means by which it came to us was a person as well as uh, the uh, one that is the basis of our salvation. God uses people to spread his redemptive power in his work. He began the pattern in Jesus, and he extends it in Jesus' body. And there is a sense in which you could define, I think, the body of Christ as that group, that uh, social unit through whom the redemptive power of God spreads out to a world around. So that if the life of God is not in a person, then he's not a part of that body. If he is a part of that body, the life of God is in him. And that is then, through him, available to uh, those that do not have it. I think it can be said, biblically, that uh, our salvation is never in ourselves. It is in another. That's one of the things I appreciate uh, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer, explicitly clear on that. The one in whom our salvation originates, the one who gives to us salvation, provides it so that we call him the Savior instead of the witness, the Savior, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. I don't know about you, but uh, the atonement has intrigued me for many, many years. Uh, I'm not about to tell you that I've answered all my questions on the atonement. I take the text, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The passage in Corinthians where, Second Corinthians where it says, He made him, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might, uh, be, that we might be, find redemption. Now, 
the New Testament says that it was in his body that he bore our sins. I'm not about to answer all the questions you can raise on that, but it doesn't say in his spirit, it says in his body. I don't mean that his spirit was exempted from it, but it involved the physical part of him. It involved the human part of him for uh, for our redemption to be possible. Now, the significant thing is, and, and let me say, the, the marks of that redemption are we speak of as the scars of Christ. I don't know whether you've ever done this or not, but I dare you sometimes to take a Methodist hymnal and take a day off and go somewhere and read the Methodist hymnal. And uh, as you read it, notice how many verses there are in the Methodist hymnal that are devoted to the wounds and the scars of Christ. There is a very real sense in which the, the body of Christ has a love affair with the scars of Christ. Wesley, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. Uh, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his Hands and feet. Behold his hands and sight. Rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can freely bear that sight, but downward cast his wondering eyes at mystery so bright. The indication is that when we meet him, when we see him, one of the ways we will recognize him is by the scars in his hand. You will remember that on the road to Emmaus, when he appeared on Easter Sunday and traveled with them, and they did not know who he was, and their hearts were strangely warmed as they traveled with him, as he talked about himself, and as he took Moses and the prophets and used the Old Testament text to show that they should have recognized, at least that seems to me to be the thrust of the passage, they should have recognized the necessity of the cross. Now, you will remember they were so deeply moved that when they got to their destination, they said, come in, let's don't let this stop. Come in and you break bread with it. And you will remember in the breaking of bread, he was made known to them. And there's some people who think that it was when he broke the bread that they saw his hands. You will remember that evening, on Sunday evening, the first Sunday after the, after the crucifixion and the first resurrection Sunday, you will remember that, uh, when he appeared in their midst, John, uh, 19, or John 20, 19 to 23 tells it, when he appeared in their midst, the first thing he did was to show them his hands and his side. So there is a very real sense in which there is a biblical thrust that it was in his body. Now, let me watch my language. His body, let me say it this way. I don't want to exempt his spirit from it because it was his spirit that cried out saying, Father, deliver me from this. And it was his spirit that cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there is 
clearly the involvement of his body in the atonement from what I can see in the text of the New Testament. Now, uh, so we love those signs of his commitment to us, those signs of his love for us, those signs of his sacrifice for us. One of the things that's awesome to me is that in most of those hymns, when the when the poet talks about the death of Christ for us and the wounds that he bore, most of the references are in the present tense. Now, I'm not going to answer the questions that are raised. I'm just going to tell you what I've observed. It doesn't say five bleeding wounds he bore on Calvary. It says five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. I noticed that in the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, the verse that says, Crown Him the Lord of Love. Behold His hands and sides. Rich wounds. The next word is very interesting to me. Yet. Rich wounds. Yet. Visible above, in beauty glorified. And that yet, that adverb, puts them in the present tense. Now, uh, when you take, when we, you, you, you come back to what we were saying earlier about the relationship between time and eternity, and he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, you get the impression that this atonement was something that is not just punctiliarly uh, accomplished between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. I know there is that punctiliar part to it, but we get the passage that we mentioned yesterday when it says the Holy Spirit groans for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, present tense, and he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Now, I believe that Christ died once for our sins, and in that sense it was over, but there is a sense in which he still bears us in his heart. And those currents uh, marked in his resurrected body are the sign of his commitment to us and of his continual carrying of us in his soul. We, he bore our sins on the cross, and he bears us in his heart now and our uh, that is the, the the greatest assurance of our ultimate salvation the fact that he bears us there now if the new testament places that emphasis upon what took place in the body the physical body of christ when he died for us is there a transition that is uh, supposed to be made when we when the text says that we are the body of Christ. Now, I know I get into some tricky stuff there, but let me go ahead and walk into it, and then you you draw the line very carefully where it needs to be drawn so that we do not uh, uh, get a false picture of what is taking place. But New Testament is clear that we are his body. Let me go back to those passages we read yesterday where he said, 
If they receive me, they get my father. My father and I are one. If they miss me, they miss my father. And then he said, if they get you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me, they miss my father. We come in a package, and the text says, we are his body. Now, if that's so, then should there be certain marks on his body? There are marks in the resurrection body. Are there marks in the body of Christ? Now, what are the marks that ought to be on me, in me, if I am a part of his body? And what are the marks that ought to be on in you, if you are a part of his body? Let me go back to Amy Carmichael. Uh, she was a poetess. And uh, one of the poems that she wrote, uh, again, the ladies in my family uh, showed me this. I never would have found it otherwise. But she was speaking about the body of Christ in the sense of the church. And so she wrote a poem that said, Hast thou no scars? No hidden scar in foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded. But the archer, spent, leaned me against the tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet is the master, so shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. The thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Now, I suspect if, if I am his, if I am sent into the world for its redemption the way he was sent into the world for mine, there ought to be some marks in my life characterizing me that characterize him. Now, I'm not interested in the stigmata. Maybe I should be. But uh, there ought to be some things. And what is the major thing? I wonder if it is not in a place where you do not casually observe that the greatest mark are deep within the spirit of the person who is a member of the body of Christ. It is not so much what he says as it is what's in here that makes him say it. Profound, identifying, self-sacrificing concern. It's not so much what we say as it is the heart behind what we say 
that is filled with an identification with the people to whom we minister, a profound concern for them, and a self-sacrificial self-giving for them. If the only way that Christ could save us was by giving himself for us, then I wonder if we'll ever be instruments of redemption unless we give ourselves for the people to whom we are sent. Do you know? I think sometimes that's a note and a motif that we've tended to push to one side. One of the advantages of getting old, a lot of advantages of getting old is your memory is longer, your experience is broader. You have more illustrations, more data in your memory bank. And I think back across my life to people whose lives made a significant difference in their community, in their city, or in their country. I suspect the greatest influence on my life as far as a model is concerned of a pastor-preacher was a Presbyterian, interestingly enough, not a Methodist. He was the pastor to my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. He uh, never married. He was a remarkable man. Pastored First Presbyterian Church in Schenectady, New York. In those days, Schenectady was General Electric, and General Electric was almost Schenectady. The beautiful northern city, uh, high educational level in the community, engineers dime a dozen, and those were good days for General Electric. And everybody in General Electric went through Schenectady. When uh, Herbert McKeel moved into that church, let me get my words carefully, it was a church that was characterized more by social status than it was by passionate concern for a world. And you know as well as I, you've seen churches where social status was uh, almost more important than a world that needs Christ. And that's the kind. If you remember the Mohawk Country Club and a, a GE engineer and a member of First Presbyterian Church, you had three stars out of your name in the social register. And this young uh, Presbyterian pastor was sent there. There was no Sunday evening service. He began his Sunday evening service in his study with seven people. And I became acquainted with the church when I would go to visit my in-laws, and they'd take me to church on Sunday night. And there would be a church filled with people on Sunday night. But worse, I'd go on a Wednesday night in a snowstorm like you can only have in northern New York, and when you've got the heavy snow coming down and 12 inches already on the ground, and there'd be 250, 300, maybe 400 people in a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Now, I'd never seen anything like that. So I said, I'd like to see what makes this thing tick. Now, it was not easy. I remember I asked for an appointment with Dr. McKeel. And I uh, walked into his big, long office that was 
half as big as this room. Most the, the best personal library I've ever seen. And uh, when I walked in the door, he looked at me, and his opening words were, no greeting at all. Are you happily married, Dennis? Opening words. I really didn't know him. I was sure the way he said it, Elsie and I were halfway to the divorce court. There was that incriminating preacher's tone in his voice. And uh, so I looked back at him and said, what, yes? Good, now what do you want? He was a professional in counseling. Uh, I remember one Sunday afternoon, I visited the church. They had an evangelistic rally on a Sunday afternoon. It was the most powerful church evangelistically I ever knew personally. And I never saw but two or three public invitations given in it. Now that didn't fit my pattern. So I remember one day turning to one of the laymen in the church and I said to him, how'd you find Christ? Well, he said, I was repairing the telephone in the pastor's study. Another an elect, general electric engineer, I said, how did you find Christ? Well, he said, the first time my wife and I went to the church, a top engineer in GE and his wife saw us, met us, and invited us for dinner. And out of the friendship with that elder, the two of us came to know Christ. They served in Japan for a while. Uh, fascinating the way it was done. Now, I remember... In this evangelistic rally, I went in and sat to observe in a, the most formal church I think I was ever in, and he was the most formal pastor I ever knew. Very, very proper uh, Presbyterian. But this was an evangelistic rally. At the close, the man who spoke gave an invitation and asked people to come forward, and they took them into the study which I said was a room half as big as this. And while I was sitting back there at the close of the service, one of his elders came back to me and said, uh, Dennis, would you come help us in the inquiry room? I never worked in an inquiry room. So uh, I said, well, yes, I wanted to see what was going on, so one of the reasons I went was curiosity. So I went back into this magnificent study, and here were these people who'd responded to the public invitation on a Sunday afternoon. And as I stood there, no, as I walked in the doorway of the study, Dr. McKeel was standing there. I didn't think he knew who I was. But as I walked through the door, he stuck out his hand and said, Dennis, you give the invitation. And I froze. At that time, I was pastoring four country churches in eastern North Carolina. Uh, I never, I'd never been a part of a big city church like that. He said, you give the invitation. I said, doctor, you know much better how to do that than I do. Stand over there. You give the invitation. He was a kind. They called him. Their name for him was the Domini. That's the way they referred to him. The Domini. And they called him Domini. He spoke, you jumped. 
I did. I stood over there. Funny thing was, I started reaching for my testament and trying to figure, now what am I supposed to do when a team member from the evangelist team took over? And he said, there are six things you need to know and there are three things you need to do. And he ran through his litany. We've all sinned, come short of the glory of God, sort of the Roman way of salvation, worked them through the logical steps. He said, you want to. Read your Bible every day, pray every day, witness every day. Thank you. And he walked out. Dr. McKeel turned to me and said, Dennis, will you lead us in prayer? And it was like judgment. It was funny the way that crowd, you know, every head dropped. Man, it, it was reverent. Well, I started to pray. I hardly got through my first three sentences when he tapped me on the shoulder. And I kept on praying. He kept tapping. And I kept on praying. And he kept tapping. And so I wound my prayer up. And looked at him and said, take care of that lady over there. It was an older lady. And she was emotional. And he wanted that cared for. Without disturbing the rest of the people that were there. Some reason he thought I could handle it. I don't know what he knew about me, but I went over and talked with the older lady and her daughter. Well, here I was. I knew one person in that room, and that was the elder that had come to get me. So I went to Dr. McKeel and I said to him, I want to thank you for the invitation back to, to be a part of this. He didn't, his answer to me was he shook his head and said, this whole business irks me. And I stared at him wide-eyed. I thought it was remarkable in a very formal Presbyterian church to have an evangelistic invitation and that kind of thing. And so as I stared open mouth, he said, not much room for repentance in this. Now, he was a fascinating person. But do you know what happened? While I was at Princeton, head of the Old Testament department, Henry Snyder Gaiman said to me, Dennis, where do you live? I said, well, right now, we're living in Schenectady, New York. I said, where do you, he said, where do you go to church? I said, well, when I'm in Schenectady now, I attend First Presbyterian Church in Schenectady. It's my father-in-law's church. Oh, he said, that's the church. Yeah. That's the church that robs General Electric of all its engineers and sends them around the world as missionaries, isn't it? Now, the reality is there was a General Electric recruiter who had a meeting in New York City during that period of university uh, seniors, engineering graduates, and he spoke to them about the great future working for General Electric. And he said, what a great city Schenectady is. And then he said, we have only one hope, and that is that none of you are Presbyterians. Or if you are Presbyterians, that you won't go to the first Presbyterian church. And so one of these students said, what's wrong with the first Presbyterian church? Well, they said, we don't suppose there's anything wrong with it, but all our good engineers that go there end up in Quito, Ecuador, 
or in or somewhere in Kenya, Africa, or in Afghanistan. Now, I think there were five or seven daughter churches that came out of that church. I don't know whether you're familiar with HCJB, Quito, Ecuador, Voice of the Andes, that's one of the radio broadcasts that's reaching that phenomenal number of people uh, every month with the gospel that Sam talked about. That's powered from a hydroelectric plant. The sun... One of the engineers that Herbert McKeel led to Christ, an engineer himself, built that whole hydroelectric system in Quito, Ecuador. We have an Asbury graduate who runs a medical hospital in uh, Kenya, in Tenwek, Kenya. The president of the Christian Medical Society told me, he said, Dennis, it's the best operation in all of Africa. At that time, it had 130 beds and 390 patients. They slept from nose to toe and toe to nose, two in a bed and one underneath. And in a year, that year they had 8,000 conversions. Because when a person comes to the hospital in Africa, the whole family comes because there's no kitchen and there's no cafeteria. So the whole family comes and feeds the patient. And they're all there, so they have a pastor evangelist, and that year, which was 1985, there had been 8,000 conversions through that. Well, uh, you know where they get their power? From a hydroelectric plant. There's a fall there, 300 feet. Engineer, out of that church, built that hydroelectric plant. There's been one Christian church in Afghanistan in a thousand years. And it was there for about ten years. Pastored by a fellow from that church. I could keep going. Well, I wondered about the influence of a man like that. I lived for five weeks with him once in Scotland. Uh, we were at the University of Edinburgh, and so uh, he pushed me into going. And uh, so we found rooms in what they call in Scotland digs. Interesting place to live. The ceilings were twelve, were fourteen feet, and the windows were twelve. And there were two panes out in the windows, and it was winter time. And the only way to keep warm was uh, a space heater. About like this, gas that you put the old British big pennies in. So I spent the day collecting big pennies so it wouldn't freeze to death at night. And you had to heat it every 15 minutes. Well, in the night when we'd sleep, it'd get awfully cold in there and damp. I don't think in five weeks I ever waked up first. And every morning I waked up, now I was very conscious of what a high privilege it was for me, a young Methodist preacher, to uh, be living with that close to a man like Herbert McKeel. He was the kind of man that would read his scripture lesson out of the New Testament on Sunday morning from the pulpit straight out of the Greek and translate as he went. I've never known but about four men who could do that, or who did it. 
But uh, I'd look over and notice his bed. There was nobody in his bed. But there was a clump of clothing, bed clothing, side of the bed. And the only thing in the bed was usually a Greek Testament or a, or a Bible. And before I'd wake up, he'd wrapped his clothing, or he'd wake up, wrapped his clothing around him, and he was down on his knees. And he was there for an hour. Every morning of the five weeks that I was there. I had a chance to see him, and you know what I saw? I saw a man who carried Schenectady, New York, in his soul. He bore Schenectady, New York, in his soul. Now, he didn't always have an easy time, but some way or other, he always managed to keep a majority of one on his session, on his church board. And he stayed, if I remember correctly, 35 years there. In my experience, the most phenomenal pastoral ministry I ever saw. You know, I felt that I got a glimpse as to the secret of it in those, in those mornings when he was there and when we'd pray together and when we'd talk together. His concern for people was phenomenal. And his concern for the gospel. My mother-in-law, the last few years of her life, lived with us. Great experience and a good experience. She died on a Thursday morning. Uh, we went in a room about 8.15, and she had started to sit up. And she got started to get up. She sat up on the side of the bed, and instead of getting up in Wilmore, she got up in heaven. She fell over, and she was lying on the bed. I was very grateful that I was home that late that morning so that Elsie didn't have to face that. And so uh, that was 8.15, I'd say, is in, the, in the morning. Well, you know, when a death like that, your time is taken up. 2.30 that afternoon, I got a phone call. It was from Herbert Surface McKeel in Connecticut. He said, in his domine tones, dominical tones, he said, uh, Dennis, I understand that Anna is gone. How you learned, I've never found out. I said, yes, that's right. This was a Thursday. He said, we will have the funeral on Monday at 12 o'clock. It will be at 12 o'clock so that her friends who work can come. There will be no flowers, Dennis. We bury paupers and millionaires exactly alike in First Presbyterian Church. If you'd like a canopy of flowers to go on top of the casket over the, what do you call it? Uh, he said, fine, but there'd be no other flowers. And he said, when we, he said, you will give the invitation to the sinner. And I said, I beg your pardon? Oh, he said, you will give the invitation to the sinner. I'd never heard of such in a funeral. 
but it was such a commonplace thing with him. He didn't he didn't even think it was necessary to explain to me that in a funeral service you preach the gospel and gave anybody who didn't know Christ a chance to understand. Now remember, I never saw him give a public invitation, as we think of an invitation. But always the gospel was presented in such a way that a person knew that he had been confronted by Christ if he was sensitive to what was taking place. And he said, when we finish, her friends will line the sidewalk and she will be carried out between her friends to be carried to the cemetery. Well, uh, I have two brother-in-laws that are Methodist preachers. And I said to him, Dr. McKeel, uh, I come up and visit you and you make me preach for you. You've never had them preach. You use them. He'd be a member of the family for this one. So I reneged and I sat with the family on that. But in many ways, it was the most beautiful funeral I ever saw. I never sat through a communion service more sacred or holy than when he had it. Magnificent at form, formal worship, formal worship with a heavy, strong sense of the Holy Spirit in it. But you know, he was the kind of person that if he thought you needed Christ, he was not going to let you go without being confronted somewhere, somehow, with the claims of Christ on you. I remember once he was pushing me on something. He was capable. And I didn't know how to handle a person who had that kind of psychological power. And so I sort of fought with him. And uh, I emotionally oversaid what I was saying, get him off my back. That was on a Monday morning. Monday afternoon, about four, he came back to my house, 20 miles away. When I found him at the door, I was astounded and guilty for the way I'd talked to him that morning. person much older than I. He came in got down on his knees in front of me and looked at me and said, Dennis, no man has the right to talk to another man the way I talked to you this morning. I'm not leaving till you forgive me. On a Saturday before communion, he went to see the wife of one of his elders and said, the invitation says, ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors. I've got to give that invitation tomorrow, and relationships between you and me are not exactly what they ought to be. What do I do? Now, what is it that motivates a person to put himself, to expose himself like that? It was his concern for the salvation of his people. I had the opportunity to be a man who bore his people. And I had the opportunity to see a ministry that was fruitful evangelistically without what so many of us would have feel are essential patterns for evangelism. 
it was the body of Christ at work, living together, and functioning. You know, as I've thought about uh, what has happened in human history, uh, you know, they say that today, there are about 20,000 conversions a day in Africa. One of the greatest explosions in Christian history taking place in Africa now. I want to say where I've come. I suspect that that started, as far as he had anything to do with it, not in the feet and in the mouth of David Livingston, but in his heart, in his heart, as he bore a continent in his soul. I come from a Scottish background, and the Scots have contributed a great deal to the kingdom of God. You remember a John Knox and his prayer? You remember his prayer was, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Some way or other. John Knox's life had become tied up with the life of Scotland. To where for Scotland to live, he'd live. And for Scotland not to spiritually live, he wouldn't live. Lord, give me Scotland or I'd die. Now, uh, I don't know whether you've ever read the journal of Francis Asbury or not, but I'm convinced it's one of the great documents in the history of the church. Uh, I began to sense some of the uniqueness of it when I went to Asbury College as president, and I thought, well, we bear the name of Asbury. It would be great if I sent out a Christmas card every year to the alumni and to friends of the institution, and we made our own Christmas card. And so I thought, I'll go through the journal of Francis Asbury and find some devotional thoughts for Christmas. So I took all the 25th of December in uh, his, or a good chunk of them in his journal and worked my way through. You know what a typical 25th of December entry is in Francis Asbury's journal? I arose at Sister Johnson's home in Waukemaw at 4 and preached at 5 and at 7 was on my way to the next preaching appointment. He lived for this country and for its evangelization. He carried this country, what then was settled in his heart, and poured out his life for it. Now, I guess that's the kind of thing that uh, I was trying to get at this morning with this Hebrew stuff. Some way or other, the need of a nation and the greatness of God and the goodness of God met in the heart of Francis Asbury. They met there, and when they met, 
it was like a nuclear explosion in a sense. The need of Africa and the grace of God met in the heart of David Livingston. He identified himself with a continent, took the burden of it, and if you've read his life, he gave his last moment for Africa. Died on his knees, pouring out his life. He lived for Africa. I've come to wonder if anybody ever comes to know God unless somebody's, somebody else's life has become involved. Not in the casual verbal sense. I must say, I get weary of the way some people witness. It's almost as if I've, I've got this choice truth and I'm on the inside and I give you this and if you'll listen to me, you'll be on the inside. And it's sort of a this way to this way level. I notice that when Christ came to show us, it was this way. He identified himself with us, took our state, bore our circumstances, our conditions, bore our sin and our lostness, and when all of that met in him, the possibility for redemption for you and me occurred. You remember the passage in Galatians 4.19? Paul had gone and preached to the Galatians and they had been converted. And then the uh, Judaizers came in and they turned their attention away from faith in Christ to the law and to work. And Paul says to them, you're fallen from grace. And then in that great passage in 419, he says, my little children, for whom I travail again in birth until Christ be formed in you. It's interesting that Christ being formed in them began in Paul's heart and in the travail of his soul. Now you notice the word travail. It's a lady's word, isn't it? It's something we don't know anything about except metaphorically. But it's for a life to be born. A woman has to take that life into her body and bear it until it's born. Discomfort, sometimes embarrassment, self-consciousness, sometimes pain, and always danger. Isn't it interesting that nobody gets life without somebody risking life? And there comes an identification. And for one to live, another bears. Now I wish I knew how to apply that to pastors. I wish I knew how to apply that to parents. 
Now, I don't know whether I'm right or not, but do you know why I think I am a Christian and in the ministry? One of the key factors is my mother who bore me in her heart. After she died, a friend of mine, a lady who was a friend of my mother's who used to pray with her, said to me one day, Dennis, I used to talk with your mother and we'd pray together. And she'd say, Ms. Edenfield, I want you to pray for Dennis. I believe that God wants him in the ministry. You know, my mother never said one word to me about the ministry. Not a word. And do you know how grateful I am? I've never had to fight the battle psychologically that a lot of guys have had to fight where they were not sure whether it was the voice of God or their mother that was pushing them into Christian work. I've seen enough of that. She never said a word, but she bore me in here. Now, you bear people in your heart. I want to give you a good word in closing. You know, Christ died for the sins of the world. And not everybody's saved, been saved. But his death made possible the salvation of those that have. Your business and mine is not the salvation of the world. It's to make it possible for people to be saved. Because the response comes from within the individual. And it can never be imposed on another person. But the pains that you bear, the care that you carry, the concern that's deep in your spirit, those days when your heart yearns over your people, I suspect that's the greatest thing that you ever do and the most fruitful. We live in a day when we want to be detached But I suspect it's when we let our heart become the arena where the needs of others meet first in us with the grace of God that the possibility comes then for God in his grace and the ones whom we bear to meet in the life and experience of the people we bear. That's noble business. <laughs> That's noble business. You know what I'm convinced is the greatest, greatest job in the world? The noblest? Pastoring. Pastoring. All the rest of us are just simply sort of external support systems to you. But the battle is won or lost in your heart. And uh, how much depends upon it. I noticed that Jesus said some things about what it meant to be a shepherd. I... Uh, I'm sure all of us have always loved that figure of Christ as a good shepherd. We've got it in our churches, paintings, and so forth. 
But you know, it's only been within the last three or four years that I've been able to simply see what's right there in the text. Jesus, I think, was in the courts of the temple or in the vicinity of the courts of the temple when he preached that 10th chapter of John. And I suspect the ones he had his eyes on were the priests in the temple. He said, I want to talk to you about shepherds. Your shepherds. Because the, the, the Hebrews looked upon a priest as a shepherd. Read Ezekiel 34. Many other passages in the Old Testament. He looked at them and he said, I want to talk to you about shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. My father sent me to lay down my life for my sheep. My father loves me because I lay down my life for my sheep. Do you know how radical that is? It's only been within the last three or four years that it dawned on me. Do you know what everybody keeps sheep for, what a shepherd keeps sheep for? A shepherd keeps sheep for one of three reasons. To eat, or to wear, or to sell, so somebody else can eat and wear them. And do you know what Jesus said? I'm different. I keep sheep, not so I can eat and wear them, but so they can eat and wear me. But uh, the head of the church, the major Protestant church in Romania, is a fellow by the name of Joseph Sahn. Joseph Sahn was pastor. And he found himself in conflict with the communist government there. And so they decided that he was a problem. So he'd have to be dealt with. So one day they moved in and stole and, and took all of his library except for two volumes. Two books were left lying on the floor that didn't have jackets on them. They were very badly worn and they must have thought they're worth nothing, so they just left them behind. One of those books was Martin Niemöller's story of his, his imprisonment. The other one was E. Stanley Jones' Abundant Living. They put him through merciless interrogation for six months, sometimes 12 hours a day. They came close to breaking him, and that's what they intended. One day, he came back from his uh, interrogation, and he went into his study and shut the door and fell flat on the floor. And he said, God, I can't take anymore. They're breaking me. I can't take anymore. He said, it's never happened to me but three times. But he said, I heard a voice. At least I thought I did. And said, get up, Joseph. 
So he said, I stood up, and the voice said, read that book on the shelf. He said, no problem, which one? There was only one there. And it was uh, E. Stanley Jones' Abundant Living. The Niemöller text he kept by his bed. He opened the book and turned, and the reading that he uh, turned to was How to Be Victorious Over Negative Circumstances. And it was about Jesus and the cross. That uh, when Jesus faced the cross, the symbol of cruelty, shame, criminality, obloquy, death, when he faced it, instead of rejecting it or complaining against it, he embraced it. And when he embraced the cross, the cross was transformed from a symbol of obloquy and shame, cruelty and death, to a symbol of hope and of life and of beauty. Stanley Jones said, embrace your problems. And God will transform them. He said, I said, Lord, do you mean I'm supposed to embrace those interrogations? And God said, yes. He said, I went back different. One day he said, the chief inter interrogator looked at me and said, Joseph, you're not going to learn. It's obvious. You won't learn. Only thing, looks like the only thing we can do with you is to kill you. Joseph said, I found myself looking back and saying, I understand. That's your ultimate weapon. When everything else has failed, you've always got that. Now, I have an ultimate weapon. You see, your ultimate weapon is to kill. My ultimate weapon is to die. Self-sacrifice. And when you play yours, I get to play mine. The guy said, I'll go on home. He said, it wasn't long until I got word by the grapevine from the chief interrogator who said that Joseph's son is a fool. He wants to be a martyr. We're not fools. We're not about to give him what he wants. And I found I could go anywhere in Romania and preach anything I wanted to preach. He said, you know, it reminded me of that fellow who said, if you lose your life, you'll get it. self-sacrifice. His church sent him to Oxford. They needed somebody who was theologically trained. They have a thousand young men who are studying, who want to study for pastoral ministry in Romania right now. So Joseph went to Oxford, took two degrees. His wife was discriminated against. While he was gone, he was listed as a public traitor for leaving the country. When he had finished his work, the uh, Christian Fellowship, the university at Oxford, for all 20-some colleges met, and they had Joseph speak. And he told them 
his experience and about how he was going back. When he finished, there was a question and answer period and a British student stood up and said, Joseph, that's very noble, but really, what chance of success do you have? And he said, I thought, success? That's a Western question. We can't ask that question. So he said, I said, Lord, how do I explain to him without putting him down? He said, I found myself saying, well, success? You remember Jesus said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. He said, I guess I'll have about the same success as a sheep does, has the possibility of success of the sheep surrounded by ravening wolves. But he said, you know something? Our business is to let the wolves of this world know the nature of the land. And do you know the only way a lamb can let the wolves of this world know the nature of the lamb is to let them eat him. There is an amazing movement of the Spirit in Romania now. I wonder how much of it started deep in the heart. You see, in this business of the Trinity and personhood, nobody stands alone. Jesus' life came from the Father. The Scripture says our life comes from Christ. You know the only hope of the world? It's the likes of people like you and me. Blessings on you, your shepherd. Blessings on you.